Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's virtual event, CBAM and ETS, where we're going to be asking, do their current designs aid EU climate ambitions? My name is Dave Keating. I'm a journalist based in Brussels, and I'm coming at you live from the Euractiv studios at the heart of the EU quarter. Now, today we're going to be talking about the EU emissions trading system, which has been on a roller coaster ride over the past 15 years, and how it will intersect with the proposed carbon border adjustment mechanism, CBAM, otherwise known when the WTO isn't listening as a carbon import tax, although that is certainly a controversial term. Now, this week, we saw the price of carbon trade close to 97 euros per ton, a far cry from the 7 euros we were at just a few years ago. The rise is the result of a market intervention several years ago, which aimed to raise the flagging price of carbon in the ETS, which was too low to produce the incentives needed for emissions trading to function properly. So now that the ETS price is starting to bite, the European Commission last year proposed the CBAM as a way to prevent carbon leakage, which is a phenomenon when companies might move their production outside the European Union in order to avoid ETS and other climate policy costs. Now, importers under this proposal will have to buy carbon certificates corresponding to the carbon price that would have been paid had the goods been produced under the EU's carbon pricing rules. But if a non-EU producer can show they have already paid a price for the carbon used in the production of the imported goods in a third country, in other words, if that third country has equivalent climate legislation, the corresponding cost can be fully deducted for the EU importer. Now, the Commission hopes that the EU will never have to apply the CBAM and that the pressure it creates will be enough to motivate third countries to get their climate legislation to the same level as the EU. But it's a controversial proposal and risks running afoul of World Trade Organization free trade rules. It is, for the moment, just a proposal. It needs to be accepted by the European Parliament and the European Council, made up of the 27 national governments of the EU, uh, and they could amend the proposal in all kinds of different ways. So the CBAM will progressively become an alternative to the free ETS allowances that have been given out to mediate potential carbon leakage up until now. Free allowances under the proposal will be phased out as from 2026. Many energy-intensive industries will be particularly affected by this transition. The steel industry, for instance, estimates that the combined impact of CBAM and the loss of, loss of free allowances in the ETS will cost nearly 14 billion euros in 2030 under a business-as-usual scenario. So, What's in store in the coming years if CBAM comes to pass? And how can we make sure this transition from the free allowances to a CBAM import cost system will run smoothly? We've assembled a panel of experts and policymakers to discuss this issue today. Let me introduce them now. We have with us Maria Elena Scopio, Director for Indirect Taxation and Tax Administration at DG Tax UD at the European Commission. We have Swedish Liberal MEP Emma Weisner, a member of the European Parliament's Environment Committee. We have Finnish center-left MEP Mia Petra Kumpula-Natri, a member of the Industry and the Energy Committee at the European Parliament. 
We have Judith Curtin Darling, Deputy General Secretary for the Trade Union Confederation Industrial. We have Oliver Sartor, Senior Advisor for Industry at the think tank Agora Energiewende. And finally, we have Axel Eggert, Director General for the European Steel Association, Eurofer. Thank you all for joining us this afternoon. Now, you guys at home will be able to ask your questions to the panelists using the Q&A feature on Slido, uh, which you should be seeing if you're on the Euractive page now. You can go ahead and type those questions in starting now if you already know what you'd like to ask the panelists. And I'll be reading out your questions to the panelists later on in the event. So, Maria, let's start with you. Uh, of course, the per Commission's perspective here is really important because that's where the proposal has come from. Tell us how the Commission envisages that CBAM and the ETS are going to intersect. Yes, good afternoon, Dave, and uh, thanks a lot for your, the invitation of your active. I'd like to welcome all the other panelists and uh, the audience who is currently listening to us. Um, I would just like to introduce a few points on, on CBAM. CBAM is not a tax, it's not a tariff, it's not a trade policy instrument. It is a purely climate regulatory instrument. And its relationship with UETS is extremely close. In fact, this complements totally the UETS. They will have the same carbon price applied to imports and to domestic products. Without an effective UETS, CBAM would not make sense. In fact, CBAM, what is it? It's just the external aspect of the ETS. It's the other side of the coin. And then if you keep this in mind, you can easily understand its rationale. You have uh, uh, very correctly reminded the two main principles on which CBAM is based. There is same carbon pricing. So we will make third country producers pay the same as you companies pay. And if they don't pay, there will be no adjustment. The second principle is no double pricing. The adjustment will not be applied on top of the carbon prices that have been charged in third countries if it, they are effectively paid. So you see the interactions between CBAM and ETS are really very, very, very close. And uh, not only they are close from an intellectual point of view, but also from a timing point of view. If ETS is a remedy to carbon leakage, CBAM is supposed to apply progressively uh, as long as free allowances will be phased out. There is normally a misconception in the relationship between these two elements. Some stakeholders uh, consider that if we don't have CBAM, we will keep the free allowances forever. But in fact, it's exactly the other way around. The linear reduction of the ETS free allowances is already a fact. And CBAM is there to compensate for this reduction. It's there to offer a protection, to offer a solution to the fact that free allowances will have to be phased out nonetheless. Just a word on its state of play. We are now discussing in the Council. There is a special group which has been set and there are several standing committees in the European Parliament that are looking at our proposal. The leading ones are MV and INTA, as you may know, but we also have Budget, Econ, ITRE, DEVE, COMAGRI that uh, are uh, involved. And the MV will vote the final report uh, in May. We will hope to have uh, our negotiating mandate by uh, the summer and start negotiating in July, September for a possible adoption in this year still. It's important to say that CBAM will only enter into force 
in a theoretical base. It will start in 2023, but there will not be financial adjustments until 2026. These three years will be important to check its impacts, the way it works, the administrative burden, to have a dry run, in fact, not to have to hit um, companies with anything that may hurt them. We will see how it works. Then, after these three years, there will be its effective and progressive entry into force, and it will enter into force as long as the ETS allowances will be phased in. This is very important because if this wasn't the case, we would be, be infringing WTO. And infringing WTO principle is in no one's interest. It risks of backfiring. It would risk of no other third countries um, applying our CBAM. Therefore, we would be without free allowances and with no protection because we've been infringing WTO. And also we would have possible trade wars that could be that could be started we have uh, uh, considered that then 10 years to have uh, the full implementation of CBAM and the full disappearance of free allowances should be enough to give enough um, time to adjust to companies therefore we hope that uh, uh, this device is going to help the industry rather than uh, hamper it it is done to give an additional protection while trying to preserve the environment in the EU, but also outside the EU. And we frankly hope that this is going to be understood and possibly, you said never applied. Well, we say that a successful CBAM should actually disappear as soon as possible if it ever had to, to be applied. So thank you very much. Looking forward to your questions. Thanks, Maria. I think that's a very clear explanation of where the Commission's coming from on this. And as you mentioned, we've got a legislative process ahead of us. It's going to be a fun couple months for you, I imagine. Um, Emma, let's, you, you are representing the, the Parliament side of this. Of course, you're more focused on, uh, sorry, uh, I do mean, uh, yes, Emma, yep. Yeah. Uh, you are more focused on the ETS side of this. So from your perspective, uh, the, the CBAM, is it going to be successful in stopping carbon leakage as it intersects? with the ETS and, and how can we keep that intersection functioning correctly? Uh, yes, indeed. That's uh, the first and short answer to that question. Uh, I mean, so first of all, just let me introduce myself. My name is uh, Emma Wiester. Uh, I'm a new MEP since uh, since one year. Uh, I'm an engineer uh, in energy by training, uh, and I'm very happy to be the Renew Shadow Rapporteur on the ETS. So what I'm focusing on, especially the link between ETS and CBAM, is then the ETS approach to it, also making the ETS fit for uh, fit for for one and a half degree, uh, I would say. Um, the linkage with, with CBAM, uh, I mean, it's it's complex, but it's absolutely necessary. And I think that is what will make it successful. We just heard the commission. It's not a tax. It is a carbon price, a, sub, a supplement, a complement to the ETS, um, really making sure that we have an effect, regardless if you're producing in Belfast or in Beijing, if it's in uh, Shanghai or in Zagreb, if it's in China or Copenhagen, it shouldn't matter. Uh, it is the price, um, the price that we have to pay uh, to emit. Uh, and I think that is, uh, is key if we are to be successful in combating climate change. For from my end, uh, in my opening remarks, I, I was thinking, what should I say uh, in order to make an introduction? And basically, uh, we in Renew Europe, uh, being very much in the center of the parliament, uh, being very pro-market and also pro-carbon pricing, uh, we have four different bullets I want to give you as, as a start and food of thought. The first one is the ambition level. 
of the ETS. We really make, need to make sure ETS is fit for one and a half degree. Uh, we don't believe 55% is enough. Uh, so we really do need to make the ETS uh, fit uh, for the ambition level. We really want to boost innovation. So, I mean, there's a whole lot of money collected, revenues from the ETS uh, and the CBAM that needs to be um, then really going and boosting uh, innovation and, and transforming society. We therefore want to change, rebrand the innovation fund into a net zero fund, being able also to upscale a lot of innovations and large-scale deployment of new innovations, uh, sort of boosting the scope uh, of the innovation fund and also focus more on carbon sinks. So really make it a net zero fund taking us to the ambition level that we want. The third one uh, I'm especially proud of be, being market-driven, uh, market liberal, um, is that we need to let the market do its work. We really need to make sure that the ETS and also the CBAM, and for me especially the ETS, is, uh, is fit for, for purpose and let the markets do its work. I mean, auctioning is the main tool uh, of allocating, um, allocating ETS allowances. And, and we should really build the system around auctioning. Uh, we also want to avoid this uh, distortion and, and exemptions, really creating a level playing field. Uh, therefore, I will uh, come forward with several proposals on, for example, topics like indirect cost compensation, uh, ways to energy facilities uh, that being now outside of the scope of the ETS that could be included in the scope. And finally, the fourth one of my, my opening uh, remarks is we should not punish the front runners. We really need to make uh, ETS uh, a scheme where we really boost innovation, supporting our front runners. Uh, so whatever we do when it comes to CBAM and ETS, we really need to make sure that it's, it's fit for purpose, boosting and helping the ones running in the front uh, and not setting up new hindrance. Uh, for example, the benchmarks is one of the things I really uh, want to, to change uh, in order to really uh, be able to support our front runners. And that's specific, specifically interesting when we're going to talk about steel, which we're going to do later. So I, I'm going to save that one. Uh, but these four, the ambition level, they're boosting the innovation, let the market do its work and not punish the front runners. That are my like main elements and what Renew will focus on in the entire uh, ETS CBAM debate. Thanks, Emma. That's particularly good to hear about the specific amendments you're planning, uh, particularly on that indirect cost compensation. Maybe we can come back to that in the discussion. Mia Petra, let's go to you next. Uh, you're also dealing with ETS. Would you say, would you characterize the CBAM as being intended as an eventual replacement for free allowances? And does this pose excessive cost risks for that transition period. Thank you. Uh, greetings from Brussels. I'm a Finnish MEP of working also for the intercommittee, the trade. So I look with a great interest that how ZBM is taking up into the use and how it's functioning. And <coughs> excuse me, that is also even I'm working on the ETS, I do closely cooperate with the industry committee people on the CBAM, how we will get it fit for a purpose. On the big picture, I think this is important to see how the implementation of CBAM is happening. And at the moment, we are elaborating our views on the documents and papers uh, provided then to in uh, NV, but then also we have some shared competencies. 
and we will look uh, very carefully that if the CBM is uh, functioning the way it should. I do have many amendments now delivered and my own also is that how do we uh, analyze the implementation of the CBAM uh, impact assessment should really look the climate perspective that how the uh, emissions are developing and then uh, our export and industry how is it developing it is important sector for our European well-being that we do not just cut down the jobs but cut down the emissions so I really supporting the big picture that ETS has a price for polluter pays, but it's also when we import and that uh, fitting together CPM and ETS is needed. Then the price for the transition period, as you asked, uh, at the moment I'm for the opinion, we are discussing in the parliament, that it needs to be analyzed. And the commission's proposal is very technical. It sets the years that after three years, we know what's, uh, how the phase out will be. And then the CBM come instead without never be tested. So that might be that there will be some uh, strong opinions, uh, not only me, but uh, even the ITRE, uh, industry committee that we should analyze it uh, and then look the path to the end. I don't know if it's a majority of the parliament or how, but this I think is one a question mark on the Commission proposal that how can we guarantee it works. And the second one is that it uh, makes the level playing field in Europe, but it doesn't make a level playing field for the European exporters. And that is a very big question. If we have uh, better steel, for example, produced in Europe than produced in Turkey or produced in China, and we are exporting to the North Africa, or we are exporting to USA, only uh, ours carries the price, and that is the question in the air. Thank you for this uh, first introduction, some thoughts. Thanks. So definitely we're hearing from the Parliament's perspective, you guys are looking at this very closely, analyzing it and thinking about what changes could be made. Um, Judith, let's go to you next from Industrial's perspective. How do you think that the CBAM and the accompanying changes to how t the ETS functions are going to affect workers in these sectors? Thanks very much, Dave, and it's a real pleasure to follow on from Mia Petra, um, in fact, in, in this introduction round, because from Industrial Europe's uh, perspective, we're representing steel workers right across Europe, about 300,000 um, workers in the steel industry. And um, what we have to put into the context and into the mix is that this is actually a crucial decade for our steel industry across Europe. Um, in any case, with or without um, the Fit for 55 package, because around half of our blast furnaces will need to be renovated or um, replaced in this decade. So there's a colossal uh, challenge in terms of industrial transformation going on at the same time that we are pressing for um, deeper decarbonisation. And as industrial Europe, as trade unions, we are fully subscribed to the objectives of net um, carbon neutrality uh, by 2050 and the 2030 target. 
targets, um, but we need to do that within a strong industrial policy framework. And carbon pricing alone is not an industrial policy uh, framework. Um, and therefore, the reform of the ETS has to be placed in that bigger picture. Uh, we would like to see a European Steel Action Plan with environmental and uh, the ETS and the CBAM as one element in the toolbox, um, but with the other pieces of the jigsaw um, put together to ensure uh, that sub sustainable transformation um, of our industry over this decade. And we're facing intense um, global competition. As Mia Petra just said, we have um, intense global competition in terms of imports into the European market and, um, and uh, carbon leakage um, as a result of, um, of others not following uh, the same uh, stringent uh, requirements. But equally, uh, we have competition in export markets. And therefore, the design of the CBAM and the uh, reform of the ETS has to reflect really uh, both uh, sides of, of the card. Um, and for um, European workers, I was struck by um, Maria Elena's uh, comment that uh, CBAM will be theoretical at the beginning. Well, for European steel workers, carbon leakage isn't theoretical. This is something that we have experienced now um, over many years. And that's why people are extremely nervous about um, how these changes will come and why we want to ensure that the introduction of a CBAM, something that trade unions have been calling for for a long time, will be done in a very careful way. And finally, what we would like to see to ensure that that transformation is socially just as well is far more social conditionality added into um, the uh, funding streams, uh, the revenue streams which are coming out of these instruments. So whether it's uh, free allocations or whether it's CBAM um, revenues and other earmarked funds uh, from the ETS, the Innovation Fund, as well as the Modernization Fund, we think that there should be stronger links to the um, objective of the Green Deal to deliver a just transition uh, for workers and communities um, linked to those funds. And there should be clear just transition plans in companies that receive um, those European funds. And in that way, uh, we think the reform of the ETS together with the introduction of a CBAM could really contribute to being part of the jigsaw puzzle of that broader industrial plan for our steel industry in the future. Thank you. Thanks, Judith. Oliver, let's go to you next. I think you can really give us the context here about how all of this fits into the wider energy transition. What do you think is the ideal outcome of this CBAM exercise and what could possibly go wrong? <clears throat> uh, well, it's <clears throat> difficult to answer that question in, in two minutes, but I will try. Um, so in terms of the ideal outcome, I think there are a few criteria that are important. So one is we need a CBAM to be implemented, right? For for the reasons that have been explained by by um, by, by previous speakers, um, you know, we have to find an alternative solution to carbon leakage, especially for the period after 2030, because free location won't last forever. CBAM also comes with some other benefits in terms of carbon cost pass through, the funding that can be generated for for net zero funds or funds for the innovation fund, funding carbon contracts for difference, which we desperately need to support the steel sector's decarbonisation efforts. Uh, as well as the fact that you know CBAM also sends, a, a, I think, the right signal globally that that we need to gradually uh, uh, move our global trading uh, markets from from brown products to green products. So for all these reasons, part of the ideal outcome is that CBAM is implemented. Uh, another key key aspect, though, is 
one of the really important parts of the commission's proposal is that the free location that the free location that would have gone to CBAM sectors uh, that is now auctioned uh, to those sectors is essentially recycled into the innovation fund, and that that is used uh, in essence to to support uh, an accelerated transition for uh, for these these very emissions intensive sectors, and that's really important. Uh, some of the key technologies we're talking about are more expensive than what is what is uh, economic today, even with high carbon prices. There is a need to de-risk some of those technologies, which are very capital intensive uh, and relatively immature. Uh, and therefore, the, the, the funding that can be uh, gathered before 2030 uh, is critical uh, to catch this decade. The, if the EU doesn't move fast to decarbonise sectors such as steel and we don't create the right policy framework, we risk basically being left behind and to not, to not be competitive and, and our sector may actually disappear. Uh, so it's, it, it's very important that we connect this to the broader package of measures and, and in particular that the money we can raise from the Innovation Fund. That has the consequence, though, that we can't, the money has to come from somewhere. So we can't just perpetuate free allocation at the full benchmark level until 2030, while on the other hand, we have to be careful about how quickly we, we phase it in. So a, a balance is needed here in terms of the timing, and we need to get that balance right. Maybe the other part of an ideal outcome, I think, would be we have to fix or tweak some of the what, what Agora would see as, as slight weaknesses in the Commission's proposal, or the, by and large, the proposal is very good. Um, one is we need to mitigate the risk, I think, of, of, of international opposition and retaliation. And, and I think one of the ways we can do this is, as the rapporteur, uh, Mohamed Chambers, proposed, is to ensure that equivalent money flows back to least developed countries for international climate finance. Uh, that's, that's quite important. Um, uh, the, the second one is we need to make sure the CBAM is actually effective. Uh, that's absolutely crucial. Uh, and therefore, you know, the, the, the capacity of our customs infrastructure to, to adequately verify and to catch false declarations and so on, to ensure that the, the accredited certifiers are, are doing their jobs correctly, all of that's extremely important. And we have historic disinvestment in this, in this infrastructure for the last 10, 20 years, and we will desperately need to strengthen this infrastructure. Uh, so that's a critical component as well. Thirdly, we will need a solution for exports. Um, you know, uh, we, we, this is a, a complex issue because, the, frankly, the WTO is, is not very clear on this issue. It, it, the, the rules were not designed for this kind of problem, and therefore you basically don't know if it's legal or not until you have a test case, but the uncertainty means that there is some risk of implementing a, a rebate. And so we need to conduct an appropriate risk assessment here of how we proceed. Uh, our proposal would be to probably go not have a rebate initially, but to modify the rate of, of free allocation phase initially to reflect that, but to reserve the possibility to introduce uh, uh, protection for exports in, in, in the form of uh, continued free allocation to the exported production uh, uh, from, from 2030 onwards. And then finally, we have to also commit, I think, to including indirect emissions in the CBAM from 2030, maybe not initially because of some concerns around resource shuffling, but but from 2030, we think that's much less of a risk. And so if we do not include indirect emissions in the CBAM scope, uh, uh, eventually the risk is that you will have circumvention where uh, foreign uh, importers will, will shift from fossil fuels to fossil-based electricity uh, and circumvent the CBAM that way. So that can't happen. Uh, what could go wrong? Uh, very quickly, uh, we, we think, I mean, some of the, the flip side of some of the issues I mentioned, right? So if we fail to provide a solution for exports that is, that is credible, that, that leaves our options open, uh, I think it would be very difficult to actually implement you know, any kind of phase and a free location uh, uh, meaningfully in the long run, uh, and, and therefore to have a system that can actually fly in the longer term. Uh, so we need a solution there. 
we also, as I said, though, that, that requires a balancing of, of how quickly we phase in the mechanism. Uh, there's risks to going too fast and to going too slow, in particular for the funding that you raise for the transition. So a balance is needed there. Uh, what could, another thing that could go wrong is is the the, the scope could be could be enlarged beyond what is reasonable at this stage. So, for example, uh, there's some proposals to include uh, chemicals, all organic chemicals and plastics in the CBAM currently, or to include indirect emissions immediately. Uh, we think this is this this could be uh, quite counterproductive uh, in terms of the the complexity it would create. Uh, as well as the, the potential level of opposition that might create in the case of chemicals from certain key trading partners such as the United States uh, at this point. Uh, so, so there's some other things that can go wrong, um, but but hopefully, you know, we're in the safe hands of our legislators and, and, and the Commission and, and the Council and, and we'll be able to steer through these, these risks. Thanks a lot. Let's go to Axel next. So Axel, for the steel sector in particular, does the transition from free allowances to CBAM pose risks and, and what kind of risks might be there? Thank you, Dave. Um, it is certainly uh, a risk for the European steel industry uh, as the Commission uh, puts forward currently uh, the proposal to phase out uh, free allocation when phasing in CBAM. I hope we can still discuss this also with the Commission why the Parliament and the Council are already now looking for solutions. Uh, we are not against phasing out of free allocation, but the CBAM has to be tested on its effectiveness first before free allocation is further being reduced. In particular, uh, when um, with the carbon levy at the border implemented only in 2026, so only then we will see whether the system is working or not. And that uh, period will take two to three years. Uh, and in this period, we need to keep uh, the free allocation level as it is already today. Uh, then the question is, uh, will exporters in that period uh, absorb the levy or do source shifting where they export to the EU only from the most efficient uh, installations. Uh, and then uh, on top of that, we need solutions for exports, as uh, was just mentioned by previous speakers. The European steel industry uh, exports 20 million tons uh, of steel every year. That is uh, worth uh, almost 20 billion euros. So we are, if we do not do it right, we may lose over time uh, these, these exports. These exports would then have to be put on another market, on the internal market, uh, and that would create uh, additional problems uh, here in, in Europe. It would lead to capacity reductions. We need a certain capacity utilization, otherwise we have to close uh, some installations. So there could be a structural problem uh, being created if we do not do it right. Already today, our sector has a shortage in free allocation resulting in annual cost of uh, 3.5 billion euros. We have calculated that at the current price of 80 euros. Now the current price has already increased more the last two, two weeks. Uh, the Chinese government just announced that they will peak CO2 emissions from Chinese steel production only by 2030. And they have not yet fixed any date when the steel industry would become part of a domestic emissions trading scheme. Uh, EU steelmakers are about to implement over 50 projects, reducing our emissions by 30% by 2030 in not even 10 years, in just eight years. The capital investment is set at 
25 billion euros for those eight years, 45 billion euros of operational costs. Most of that is energy costs. None of our competitors has such a massive decarbonization program. Uh, overall impact on our sector is even more complex. I can come back to this uh, a bit later. Uh, we therefore can absolutely not afford any additional cost by losing even more free allocation already before 2030. Please let us discuss how we achieve the target in 2030 on our way to uh, carbon neutrality, rather than setting measures to further significantly reduce free allocation. Now, uh, this is possible in our view uh, with the allowances available and absolutely compatible with WTO. Also on this, we could have a more intense discussion, hopefully later on. We are in favor of a CBOM or any other system that tackles carbon leakage, but the system needs really to work properly. If we don't do this right and implement the CBOM uh, and the revised ETS with utmost caution, we will see a massive decrease in steel capacity and production in Europe, losses of jobs. And there I agree fully with Mia Petra Kumpula Natri, we should look into reducing emissions, not jobs. And also Emma Wiesner uh, put forward a, a, an interesting and important statement uh, that of course we should not punish front runners and all our big companies have the programs to decarbonize on the table. In the next uh, eight years, they want to implement these projects. So please let's support them and not punish them. Thank you. Thanks, Axel. So we've had tons of questions come in from the audience. Uh, great questions that are coming in, so I'm going to go to those shortly. I did uh, first want to uh, go back to uh, Maria Elena, on, uh, so you mentioned that uh, you hope not just that the CBAM would never have to be used, but actually that it would be gone after a while because every, all of the international partners will have equivalent climate legislation. But let me ask you, in the short term, until we get to that point, what countries is CBAM targeting? Is it targeting developed partners of the EU, talking the United States, uh, is it targeting China? What countries actually need to adjust their climate legislation uh, in order for the EU to say, okay, CBAM is not necessary and we are not going to have to apply it? Yes, thank you very much for this question. As I already said, CBAM is not a trade instrument, so we are not uh, targeting any country in particular. We are just applying a mechanism at the border, which will apply on the product, not on the installation, not on the country, not on the industry, not on the factory, not on the firm, on the product. No matter, no matter where the product comes from, no matter how the product was produced, we will be calculating what is the carbon content of the specific good, and then there will be a calculation of what is the CBAM adjustment at the border. So it would be misleading and it would not represent the real purpose of CBAM to say that it targets a specific country. It goes without saying that, of course, those countries that already have an ETS, which is fully linked to ours, they have no problem because uh, the, the price they are subject to is automatically linked to what our own industries are subject to. So, of course, those countries have no relevance for, for the CBAM. And as many countries are 
are there who will have ETS systems that will be linked to our own system, they will be uh, not taken into account for the CBAM application. But for the rest, we're looking at goods, not countries. So you say that, uh, Maria Elena, you say that the, the cost is just on the import and, and, and how it's produced. Uh, what do you think about Oliver's idea about uh, that, that this should include indirect emissions from 2030? Is that something you would envision as well? We, would, we didn't include uh, indirect emission in our initial proposal, um, to be very honest, because we wanted to make sure we had uh, the methodology to calculate them, and uh, at the time it was not mature. So for the moment, we are looking at direct emission, because that's also how uh, it, it mirrors the, the installation uh, system, which is on the ETS-based. I am not against uh, um, also uh, having a, a look at the indirect emissions. We, sh we should understand how far this indirect emission should be uh, taken into account. But for the moment, uh, we are able to quantify and calculate the direct emission that uh, are considered for the adjustment of SIBAM at the border. Makes sense. Uh, Emma, I wanted to follow up on something you said. You were really emphasizing innovation and that the funds from uh, both ETS and CBEM should really be reinvested in green technologies and innovation in sectors like steel. Uh, and Axel was telling us a little bit about the innovation that's happening there. Um, is that, would you say that uh, is in conflict with Oliver's idea that in order to get international buy-in, and in order to avoid retaliation, some of these profits have to be invested in third countries, in the developing world, in uh, projects outside the EU. Uh, is that money that you think should stay in Europe to fund both innovation and also uh, the just transition uh, social funding? Uh, no, not necessarily. It doesn't necessarily have to be in conflict with each other. As I said, uh, I'm Shadow Rapporteur on the ETS, so I focus mainly on the ETS. Uh, but also in CBAM, there's currently a discussion if the CBAM money, should it go into the EU budget? Should it be uh, allocated into third countries and developing countries and supporting them in their innovation? Or should it go to the EU Innovation Fund uh, as a separate fund, uh, not, not in the EU budget? Uh, and it's a big debate about this uh, at the moment. Me personally, uh, I believe it's important that... Um, First of all, we support innovation, uh, really boosting innovations uh, in, in these sectors where it's needed in order to decarbonize. Uh, but it's also important that we are I mean, showing trade partners from less developed countries that this is not about us. This is about decarbonizing and investing then the money in third countries would be a way of doing that. Uh, but I'm also open uh, to, to listening to the budge committee when they're saying uh, we should add more money to the, to the EU resources. So it's a huge debate about this on the money uh, on money side at the moment. I'm focusing on uh, the ETS and the number of allowances going into the innovation fund uh, or the net zero fund, uh, which I think should increase. Judith, let me put that question to you also, and then Oliver, I'm going to get your thoughts on this also. Uh, Judith, you're, you're going to be mostly concerned about the Just Transition Fund and, and, and uh, to alleviate the social effects of the energy transition. So would you be worried about committing proceeds from this to third countries and, and development outside the EU? 
Um, no, not necessarily either. Um, I think uh, we, we certainly want to see more earmarking of uh, revenue from the ETS into the innovation fund um, and into um, the just transition fund. And we want to see um, those social criteria um, and conditions put on those funds so that um, we're, we're sure that the, um, the social dimension is taken into account when um, funds are used uh, uh, within Europe. Um, but we've also had quite a, a, the start of a conversation in the trade union mo movement about the need to also ensure that um, we're not penalizing uh, least developed countries and, and others. So um, I think uh, there's openness to, to think about where the revenue uh, goes. Where we are very concerned, I should say, is that CBAM um, becomes, and the ETS revenues um, become a source uh, to repay the debt and um, and are solely seen as a kind of cash cow uh, to repay um, the, the the debt of the pandemic. That for us is really dangerous considering the scale of investment uh, which is needed um, in terms of decarbonisation. So we're very actively um, supporting the idea that the innovation fund and whether it changes name or not, that's uh, marginal in some ways, uh, but uh, the, the amount of earmarking into the um, Innovation Fund and the Just Transition Fund are increased in the future. So Oliver, let me get you to respond to that. Uh, I mean, you know, obviously where this funding goes is going to be very contentious. Everybody has their own ideas about where it should go. Is, does, do, you, do you think there would be a pushback to the idea of some of it leaving Europe? Uh, well, I mean, first of all, I think there's, there's two different streams of funding you need to talk about, right? So one is the actual money collected at the border from the CBAM itself, which I think is the money we're mainly talking about here. And the second stream is the potential additional uh, flow of funds into the innovation fund that could come from auctioning more allowances to, to CBAM sectors. Uh, and they're two different sources of funding, right? Um, so, so what we're essentially saying is the contentious issue with developing countries is the, the tax on their products coming into the EU. So for, for diplomatic reasons and, and for the sake of also just commit, you know, fulfilling our commitments on international climate finance under the Paris Agreement, it would make sense to return an equivalent amount of money to those funds from the border, the direct CBAM revenues to those countries. And actually, there is, I think, quite some support for that. The main concern, as Judith says, is that at the moment uh, in, the, in the, the, the budget committee, the, the own resources uh, discussion wants to basically allocate 75% of that money just to paying back next generation EU, which is not necessarily, I think, a good idea because that would only contribute a fraction of the total pie that you would need to pay back uh, next generation EU borrowing. Uh, and so we think in this case, it might be more strategic to use that small fraction of money uh, externally. Um, the, the, direct, the indirect revenues from the CBAM that could come into the innovation fund, that money needs to desperately go uh, back to, to CBAM sectors to accelerate their decarbonisation because Otherwise, we risk having effectively a kind of two-speed Europe where some countries will have the money and capacity to invest in carbon contracts for difference and other very ambitious sort of uh, schemes to, to, to decarbonize their installations. And, and, and other member states will, will be left behind. And this will create conflict and, and a great challenge, I think, for the industrial transition as a whole. Thanks. Well, I want to go to the audience questions because we have so many of them. Uh, so the first question I'm going to put to Mia Petra. Uh, this question is from Leon from Sustainable PA. 
Uh, do the MEPs agree that free allowances, if not removed tomorrow, should only be targeting sustainable front runners, but that the current ETS benchmark system, which determines the FA handouts, is currently not targeting the front runners enough? Do they agree that this system should be revised ASAP? What do you think about that, Mia Petra? In principle, yes, I think we do agree that the best ones should uh, show the way. And also the tricky question of uh, uh, what is technically feasible. We have more experiences and, and cases now that we have uh, fossil-free steel production going on, a very high demand, more than they can sell, even if it's more costly today. So also this gives the example that, yes, we are on the right track. But then also, uh, and this is now I keep to my personal opinions as the discussions are going on, uh, we also should try to create a system that is as much market-based as possible. And we then also see that the companies who are doing better, they also can finance the transition themselves if we don't squeeze them too much. But then it's, of course, the question how much we trust the roadmaps that the sector has given us, the politicians. And I'm so happy that at this moment we work with the sectors and, and the industry that has the roadmaps, that has plans to decarbonize. So this is uh, if we play this right, we will boost it, maybe get it quicker, and not the kill those ones who have their plans to produce, for example, fossil-free uh, steel and cut the emissions by 90%. Uh, the wrong decision, if we make them, is that we squeeze too much and then they do not have revenues to make the reinstallations, to uh, modernize the site and factories and start producing free. So it's, it's not very easy to do it if you do it only ideologically that yes there is one factory who can do it let's only give them the free allowances and the next uh, others will pay and pay so much that they are not anymore on the markets so finding that balance is very important but yes there is a, a strong support of fading out the free allowances and then uh, the principle that polluter pays is the basics here the whole ets is actually awarding system and, and polluter pay systems that once you don't pollute, you don't have this extra cost. And this is world and way to go. So you mentioned some of the efforts that uh, the industry is making to decarbonize. And that's related to our next question from the audience, which is for Axel. Uh, this question comes from Ola Hansen from H2 Green Steel. And it's really about what, what do we mean when we say green steel? So uh, Ola asks, do you agree that in order for steel to be considered green steel, it needs to result in significant emissions reductions, e.g. at least 90% compared to current GHG emissions per ton of steel? Uh, yes, of course, I agree that uh, green steel, we need to be able to identify um, and to uh, measure what is green steel and what can be labeled as green steel. We are currently working on a system um, and I hope we come to a conclusion within our sector uh, where we identify uh, the road uh, to green steel and how we can uh, classify that. 
um, we need, of course, a, a transition. You cannot say um, what you say sell tomorrow as green steel absolutely has to be 100% uh, decarbonized. So we need a kind of phase in of that uh, of this uh, as well. And maybe then it's not called green steel, but in a different way, uh, low CO2 steel, whatever. So uh, we should discuss this, uh, start the discussion on that um so that we come very soon to some more uh, let's say uh, certainty how this can be implemented emma emma i know you have to leave shortly so i want to go to you next i wonder if you also have a, a comment on the the front runners issue whether the front runner should be the, the emphasis yeah for me it's it's quite evident now talking about and with steel industry that we're now starting to see two different steel industries actually pushing very much in different directions. We have the traditional steel industry and then we have the front runners, as I call them, uh, the one really working on green steel, uh, decarbonizing, using hydrogen uh, instead of, of coal as, as, uh, as, uh, as an input into the production process. And if you are a decarbonized steel industry, and we already have quite a few of them uh, expanding their process in Sweden, uh, then your political agenda, then your wishes on ETS and CBAM comes quite opposite, where the one hand wants to have more uh, free allocation and more careful uh, revision of benchmarks, etc. The other one wants us to phase out free allocation as soon as possible because it disrupts the markets and it's punished them who are front runners. So, um, I mean, you have to have that in mind talking about the steel industry because the steel industry, it's not only to uh, talking as one industry uh, and we have very different perspective here. So what I want to, to do is to ex expand CBAM in sort of three dimensions. We need to cover more sectors, expanding it horizontally. We need to cover the indirect emissions, uh, cover more and deeper, so also vertically. And then we need to go faster. And that's the third direction. So really speed up CBAM. And I have to answer to what previous speakers have been saying, that we need to make sure CBAM working and then we can fully implement it, etc. I mean, what other policy areas are we doing that? Setting up a trial period and, and looks looks at the policy and, and are being hesitant. I mean, we as politicians need to make sure that we set up a policy scheme that works and then stick to it and believe in what we're doing, the craftsmanship of being politicians. So I don't believe uh, in what previous speakers said um, that we need to, uh, I mean, sort of gradually or, or set up the system and then uh, go for it. I think the commission uh, knows what they've been doing when designing it. I think we in parliament should make it better in order to make it work, uh, but we should not uh, allow for, for a trial period, uh, so to say. And I actually do believe that Carbon pricing is an industry policy, uh, on what Judith said in the beginning. Setting a price on carbon is what will drive industry and pushing our industry and helping our industry to become the most compatible green industry. I have an industrial background, so I'm passionate about this. I really believe carbon pricing is an industrial, uh, industrial tool, and I believe we can create so many new jobs in this green steel industry and that sector. But then we have to dare and we have to be, be brave as politicians. Thanks a lot, Emma. That's very clear, I think.
We've had a, a, a very pertinent question, I think, come in from Cecile Seguineau, and it's about this uh, green steel deal that was struck at last year's G20 between the EU and the US. Now, this was in the context of those two sides resolving the steel trade dispute that was launched by the, the Trump administration. Uh, and there, I think the jury's out about how serious that deal is. Uh, but we've had to, Cecile asks, uh, let me put this question to Maria Elena. Um, how would CBAM interact with this recent US-EU joint deal trade in steel from October 2021, uh, including, for instance, the development of a common methodology for assessing the embedded emissions of traded steel? Well, as you say, the jury is still out on that agreement. And uh, you may think I have uh, more information than uh, the average person, but it is absolutely not the case. Um, what I can say is that uh, if from one hand uh, we, um, we welcome, of course, any kind of agreement that would make a greener the um, production elsewhere than in the, in the EU, I can only repeat what I already said. We would be looking at how the product is embedding its emission, what is the carbon content at the border. Then it will be key to see what kind of uh, um, impact on the environment this agreement is going to take into account to see whether this would be compatible with the current design of CBAN. But I cannot comment more than this because, I, as I say, I have no idea how exactly how that will be played out. I'm not sure anyone knows exactly how that deal is going to be played out. But Axel, let me put this to you also. Obviously, you were watching this uh, with keen interest in October. So um, how do you think the CBAM is going to interact with that Green Steel deal? Will it at all? What do we know so far? Yes, thanks, Dave. Uh, this will, of course, be core of the discussion between the EU and the US. And uh, I had a discussion with the US trade representative myself um, in November, and uh, she said they are interested in, in CBAM. So they're not uh, saying no, but um, they also are looking for measures to be taken in the US. Uh, and the Commission, maybe also for that reason, has proposed in its CBAM proposal that a carbon levy is only implemented in 2026. So that gives also some room uh, to negotiate uh, with, with the US uh, to come to common terms uh, without um, the, the possibility that they retaliate already immediately. Uh, and I do not think that they will, by the way, if the discussion uh, is uh, successful anyway, then not um, uh, on retaliation that was mentioned before. Uh, I believe that the proposal we are putting forward uh, to test uh, the um, CBAM uh, with the CARM levy first uh, before further reducing free allocation uh, is an important tool and could also uh, ease uh, the uh, frictions with some of the trade partners uh, who also do not want to see in to see um, uh, significant carbon costs for the exporters immediately at the EU border in 2026. With the current proposal uh, of the Commission, uh, the carbon levy at the border would be significantly higher uh, than. Uh, uh, with the proposal to first test it for three years, then put forward a proposal or a report to the Parliament and the Council whether the system is really working, uh, and then 
phase out uh, free allocation uh, quicker. Uh, the proposal to keep free allocation at, at current levels in the moment supports also the downstream industry in Europe because they are also concerned about higher costs immediately. So um, they would suffer from a higher carbon levy uh, from the start as well, but also the exporters to the EU. The exporters would also have to pay a higher carbon levy uh, with the current commission proposal. So we believe that uh, there are only advantages and it is WTO compatible uh, to uh, have a very cautious implementation uh, of the measure. And uh, I'm happy to further discuss also with the commission and with the lawyers, with our trade lawyers, how this can be done so that the commission is also a little, more, a little bit more confident uh, on the WTO compatibility. Yes, because that is a big open question for sure. I want to go back to this issue of the phase out, the overlap, and whether we need a kind of trial period uh, that, that Emma was talking about before. Oliver, um, maybe I, I could get your further thoughts on this idea of a trial or whether we really just need to go ahead and, and stick with what was agreed. And I want to put this question to you also from the audience, which is related. So this is a question from Matty Ray from RICOM. Uh, could you please comment on the competitiveness of European industry products on the global market as CBAM raises the raw material prices and there is a risk that European products will, too highly, will be too highly priced compared to non-CBAM products? And of course, that is the heart of the worries over this transition not going well and whether or not we really need to see how CBAM has been working for two or three years before we can know whether we can phase out the free allowances. So what are your thoughts on that, Oliver? Yeah, I mean, this is this is the, the heart of the debate, right, is, is how quickly should we go? Uh, and, um, you know, I, I think that the points made by different panelists here are, are equally valid in, in a way. You know, I, I mean, uh, on the one hand, yes, we, we do need to, to move quickly because if we don't move quickly in sort of, uh, you know, creating the, the incentives for our industry to decarbonize and to raise the money for them to to also invest at scale, we risk being left behind uh, in a race that is now picking up speed internationally very quickly. On the other hand, we also have to be conscious that, you know, yes, there are some, you know, specific companies in, in, in Sweden, for example, that are able to move very quickly because they have very favorable renewable energy uh, access and, and costs uh, to produce hydrogen and so on. And that's not the case of every single installation in Europe. You know, you, you also have, if you think about doing the exact same technology for, for you know, many, many different uh, uh, blast furnaces across Europe, it's a huge scale operation that requires new power infrastructure at large scale, new hydrogen infrastructure, new storage infrastructure, new hydrogen transport infrastructure, uh, et cetera. And, you know, the idea that you can just sort of have everybody do that within the, within the speed of the next five years, I think, is unrealistic. Um, so... That's why, uh, we, you know, you need to find a balance. You need to find a balance. Yes, everyone should go there ultimately, but, you know, we, we need to sort of strike the right balance. The other thing is, uh, indeed, if we do not have um, a, 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 a dedicated export protection system initially, the exporters will be exposed and it will be 20 to 25% of the production of, of some of these sectors. And so that's also a reason to not go too fast. So, you know, it, it's a tough one, but it, I just think we need to find an intelligent balance here. Um, because otherwise we're shooting ourselves in the foot. 
Thanks. Uh, Emma, I know you have to leave, but I just wonder if you want to respond to that quickly before you have to go. I mean, there's so many, so many topics uh, at the same time. I mean, just before I leave, I really think uh, we need to be uh, ambitious here uh, when it comes to, to timeline and, and scope of, of both CBAM and ETS. We know with the current development, we're heading towards four degrees. Uh, I mean, uh, transition uh, is going to go fast, much faster than we in this house in Brussels can imagine. Uh, the steel industry projects in Sweden, yeah, well, we have a lot of renewables in our system, uh, but still uh, the steel industries up in the north still have to expand immensely also on building out renewables. Uh, I mean, the steel industry goes hand in hand with upscaling windmill parks uh, also in the north. Uh, and that is that is a journey that a lot of steel industries can do. It's not a Swedish exemption. This is actually uh, something that, that can be um, broaden up and wide scale. And I think it is important to have that in mind. I mean, the longer we delay the phase out of free allocation, uh, the, the longer we delay in implementing all of these policy tools necessary, the longer we are holding the fossil industry under their arms uh, and the longer uh, we are punishing or indirect hampering uh, the front runners. Uh, and we really need to be very careful with that, with setting up the policy schemes that are not only here today and tomorrow, they're going to be here for a while. Uh, and I don't want to do something wrong. And uh, now we have the chance to be the decade of change. And I really think we should grasp and take that chance. Thank you so much for a good event and seminar. I will have to jump out to another meeting, uh, but thanks so much. Look thanks forward lot, to Emma. talk more to, to you guys in the panel and also the ones listening. Uh, feel free to reach out on social media, Twitter or whatever, and I try to respond as much as I can. For sure, thanks. Judith, I have a question for you from the audience. So this question comes from Bert. Uh, several downstream user sectors are afraid of price increases due to the CBAM. Have you looked at the impact of CBAM on downstream sectors and should these sectors worry? So we talked a bit about workers in the steel sector. What about downstream? Yeah, of course. We, as Industrial Europe, we represent workers right across manufacturing, energy, and mining. So, including uh, the automotive industry and um, uh, energy uh, sector, and and so on. So, um, the there has been a, a lively discussion. Uh, in fact, our position that we're that I've been defending here today is the position of our executive committee, which. Um, involves the participation of all of those sectors as well. So it is still uh, perceived as an important part of the policy mix um, to ensure that broader industrial fabric that I spoke about right at the beginning. I mean, our objective um, as, a, as an industrial trade union movement is to um, ensure that we have a sustainable um, manufacturing base in Europe that is uh, delivering good quality jobs into the future. And, and part of that, part of guaranteeing the downstream sectors is also um, guaranteeing the foundation industries uh, that, that are close to them. So it's obviously, and I feel like that may be the, uh, the, the term of this afternoon, that it's, it's a balance uh, that has to be struck and um, the balance has to be uh, got right. But um, uh, our position as Industrial Europe in, in favor of a CBAM also comes with the support of, of workers across Europe in the automotive and other industries. Thanks a lot. So Maria Elena, I'm going to put to you the question that is without a doubt the most common question in the in Slido right now, 
which is how this is going to be calculated, how the imports, how the whether or not a third country uh, requirements are equivalent, how that's going to be calculated. And I know that's not settled yet, but let me just put a couple of these uh, questions to you so you can get a feel. There's like 15 of them, but here's a couple. Uh, Katerina Svitakova says, how will it be decided whether an importer country uses similar enough rules to CBAM? How transparent will the comparing process be between importers country rules and the EU CBAM? Leon uh, asks on indirect CO2, uh, would the burden of proof be on importers? Uh, and if they're not willing to provide actual data, give them a punitive default value if we're talking about indirect emissions. And of course, that's something that would be in the future. Uh, the, uh, so we have also from Berkman ISCI, will direct emissions in the steel industry be calculated realistically with flue gas analyzers, or will they be calculated theoretically from carbon ratio of raw material sources and process? Which calculation methodology will be used? So I think you get the flavor of the questions there. People want to know, how is this going to be analyzed, the import costs? Uh, well, there are different ways to calculate different things, uh, of course. Uh, first of all, you are referring to, okay, first, just to have a full picture, if I may, um, the way in which we're going to calculate the emissions and the carbon content of goods will be uh, the subject of a study that we are currently launching to exactly calculate the method, the evaluate the methodology to calculate these emissions. And so it is now a bit too early. That is part of the implementing phase of the implementation of the CBAM, and uh, we are preparing the terms of reference for for the study. And hopefully this will bring uh, additional clarity to that aspect. For what concerns, uh, in general, the line of how many emissions we are going to calculate, we stand by the direct emissions that uh, are embedded in the separate goods for the reasons that I have referred to earlier. As far as the um, abatement that you may have on the CBAM adjustment, they will have to mirror uh, the actual uh, emission. No, first, you have to pay on the actual emissions, so the, the ones that are really embedded in the good, and then you can calculate the amount of carbon price that you have paid already outside. And this will be up uh, to the um, to the importer, the, the one who is going to present the declaration to the to the authorities uh, at the at the customs, and uh, uh, therefore we will uh, uh, be calculating only those uh, direct costs that have been uh, borne by the producers outside Europe, no indirect costs. This because it would be excessively difficult to uh, calculate what has been the, the indirect impact of prices that are not directly linked to, um, uh, the, to, the, to the carbon, so only the ones that are clearly linked to, to them. And uh, um, whether that will be verified, will we we'll have a system to verify uh, the... the, the the certificate, the ones that are going to declare for the for the importers, the importers themselves can be verified. 
whether we will be able to go in third countries and verify whether what they said is correct, that is a bit complicated, but it will be up to the importer to prove that there, there was indeed a direct price that was paid abroad and then can be taken into account to um, uh, lower the amount of sebum that is going to be applied. So this is, of course, uh, the starting point that we have put on the table. We will, I would like to remind you that there are still um, implementing acts that will have to be adopted. Uh, there are still elements that will uh, be concretely explaining how SIBAM will work in practice, and these have still to come. So I'm sure that additional clarity will, uh, will be uh, out there as soon as uh, we will be adopting this kind of new uh, concrete measures, implementing measures. And the implementing measures are going to be built on the, not only the, what is the evidence that we are going to have, but also on what is going to be the final result of the negotiations concerning CBAN. And I'm sure that any additional new knowledge and understanding that we will have will be factored in in the future negotiations. And these negotiations will also be fed by the additional finding that we will be finding in the, in the studies that we are, we are now preparing. So it's a living thing. Yes, it's a living thing indeed. Uh, I, I thank you for that. That's really helpful to get an overview of what is on the table. So Axel, hearing what's on the table there, uh, is this also your expectation of how that's going to work and, and what, briefly, what do you think could be improved in that calculation? That's uh, difficult to say uh, right now, of course, but the, the basis needs to be uh, the least efficient uh, steel producers uh, worldwide. Uh, that needs to be uh, the basis uh, to calculate then later on uh, the carbon levy, because otherwise we risk to have uh, free riders. Uh, but I would like to um, make another point because there was a notion uh, that uh, only uh, Swedish uh, steel producers uh, would be the front runners. Uh, no, the steel industry in Europe as a total is a front runner in decarbonization. We are likely to be uh, the energy intensive industry sector with the most ambitious own target to reduce another 30% of our emissions uh, in just eight uh, years, uh, the 50 projects I have mentioned uh, before, or even more projects, which are all on uh, a high technology readiness level, uh, are across Europe. Uh, there are maybe five or six in Sweden, the rest is in other countries uh, of Europe. Uh, those uh, uh, companies are also um, envisaging the use of hydrogen, uh, but hydrogen, of course, needs to be available. And there, even uh, in Sweden, uh, with uh, if uh, SSAB, for example, uh, decarbonizes all its installations, they are still not sure today whether the infrastructure is there in place and in time in place. And that accounts uh, for the rest of Europe as well. Yes, Sweden has easier access uh, today to decarbonized energy. Um, but that is part of our problem uh, as a European steel industry and for energy intensive industries as a whole, that we need also the infrastructures to be in place. Uh, we can, of course, uh, and that is maybe uh, the good thing about uh, our projects, they can, can, in particular when we're talking about direct reduced iron and electric arc furnace um, technology, which is uh, 
being implemented by SSAB and other companies if the conditions are right already before 2020-30, uh, then um, we could run these uh, uh, partially uh, with uh, natural gas in a transition and by that already uh, reduce significantly our emissions. Uh, but that could, uh, of course, not uh, make uh, the uh, carbon neutrality uh, uh, reality if we over time do not have access to sufficient hydrogen. So therefore, again, there are no two speeds within the steel industry. Uh, and we have uh, most of the companies are front runners. Just please look at the facts, at the planning, at our roadmap, what the steel industry has been done over the last 20 years to make the current status that we really can take off now if the conditions are right and if we get the support. That this is this is the fact, so we don't need more front runners in Europe. We have them already, in my view. Thank you. Thanks. So we're coming toward the end of the session. Before we go, I wanted to ask you guys the, the number one upvoted question in the session, and it's coming back to this issue I mentioned at the beginning, the current price of carbon, which is closing, closing on to 100 euros. So Eric Onstad from Reuters asks, uh, and Mia Petra, I want to get your thoughts on this first. Uh, the European carbon price is nearing 100 euros. Would that price be a game changer for the steel industry? Mia Petra, is this price something we can work with depending on the contours of what we decide with free allowances and CBAM, or is the price itself a problem? Price is challenged, but at the same time, we have been looking for the price that will also uh, be a signal for the investors. And I have talked to several industrial uh, investors that they do want to see the price to be stable and then the system to be trusted so that it will not change too much so they can count their capex and apex and, and do the, all the necessary calculations for the, uh, at the moment, more expensive uh, technologies to be used. So uh, if we are not very surprised of the price, neither should be the industry be uh, for the future. And then at least the good news, as this is my last time to speak, we will have a lot of money to modernization fund and innovation fund to boost and then uh, exaggerate the roadmaps by the industry uh, on the steel, for example. So I keep uh, my fingers crossed and be quite positive to see them balancing the phase out of the um, other system. Uh, we have to make that right and, and believe but also we want to see, um, as industry committee has, as you heard, a little bit different uh, tone as the Envy committee had. So uh, how can we see, uh, is there, should there be a benchmark and, uh, analysis on the way before finalizing our way to the 35, let's see. And that difference is in tone is the usual case, I think, between those two committees. Um, so in other words, the, a price that high is okay, as long as it's consistent. Oliver, what do you think? Is this a game changer? A 100 euro a ton price for the steel industry. Uh, yeah, I do think it's a game changer uh, because because it's it's a huge increase in in their production costs, and I think that's why you're already seeing it change the game. That's why you have uh, indeed, as you say, we were talking about Swedish companies before. I know it's not just Swedish companies, Axel, who are doing things, but um, but they have just announced a very ambitious plan to to go carbon neutral for for all of their units uh, by 2030. Uh, I think it is. Uh, we see ArcelorMittal in France have made very big announcements also uh, uh, about, about what they want to do uh, there. 
uh, and, and companies in, in Germany, and I'm sure Axel can cite other companies that, that he knows better than me. Um, but, but yes, we're seeing the game change already. And this is, I think, already because some companies are anticipating, well, they have not just the higher carbon price immediately, but they anticipate also an eventual phase down of relocation and, and a CBAM and competition. And that's ultimately what we want, right? We want competition to be based on who's the cleanest. Axel, what do you think? Is 100 euros a ton, is that okay as long as it's consistent? Uh, of course, 100 uh, euros per ton of CO2 is the envisaged uh, carbon price by policymakers. It really depends also on the level of reallocation right now. Uh, because you need to understand uh, that a steel site on average has a three to four blast furnaces. It's impossible, even in Sweden, to replace all of them uh, in just eight years. It's not possible. So you will for some time have to run some of the existing uh, installations in order to finance the new investment in the new uh, decarbonized um, steel making. So um, for that reason, uh, the free allocation in the moment is a key for our uh, sector and the calm price makes already the trick uh, indeed uh, that um, the companies are pushed much more. I, I think we are all clear about that a calm price of uh, below 10 euros uh, before 2018 or until 2018 on average. Um, has not made uh, uh, the trick to decarbonize uh, the industry because also at that time we had uh, huge economic problems, the financial and economic crisis. Uh, so that was not helping uh, to, to decarbonize the industry. But our sector has used that time to push the projects. We push these projects which are now there, which may not be there in other sectors. Uh, and therefore, uh, the carbon price um, will help our sector in particular once a part of our industry has already decarbonized. So a part of each plant has decarbonized and uh, we can sell green steel on the market, create uh, a sustainable market on green steel for green, green steel in, in Europe. Right now we are selling some tons of green steel and we have customers paying for it, uh, but you cannot expect that they would pay for 160 million tons of green steel today because we would be simply not competitive anymore with the steel prices um, coming from outside Europe. Thanks, Axel. Well, that's all the time we have for today's discussion. I think, as we've heard from the policymakers on our panel, there's a long way to go here as this works through the legislative process here in Brussels. There's a lot of different ideas about how this should be designed, how the transition phase is going to go, and also what this money generated from both the ETS and the CBAM is going to be used for. So this is going to be a very, very interesting topic to watch over the coming months. Thank you to the panelists for some great interventions. Thank you to you at home in the audience for following along with us this afternoon. Uh, stick with EA Debates for this topic. We'll be following this topic a lot over the coming months, and we'll be sure to be talking about this some more. So I wish you all a great rest of your day, and we'll see you for the next Your Active Debate.